And we keep elaborating on this point of eat less chicken, eat less chicken, and giving a lot of reasons and context. And I feel like there's so many reasons, right? But when you think about the life and the, the, the sentience and the souls, as Katie put it, involved in the billions of chickens that are killed every year um, because of the end result of this, this movement of this industrialization, right? Relative to the millions of cows that are killed. I mean, even if you just think about it, on a on a on a per pound basis right if a, if an average bird is six pounds and on the average cow you get 450 pounds of meat that means to feed the, the same number of people as one cow 75 chickens need to die so it's one life versus 75 lives Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Hey friends, it's so wonderful having you back. Today, I hope you're prepared to have your feathers ruffled, both literally and metaphorically speaking, because we're diving into the current industrial model of chicken production and the realities behind that model. And in order to get here, we need to understand that pre-World War II, Americans ate less than 15 pounds of chickens per year. It was considered a culinary delicacy. Now, it is cheap and abundant. Today, consumers eat over 100 pounds per year. In order to get there, there are 26 billion chickens raised in the United States annually. Yes, 26 billion with a B. That's a lot of zeros. And the chickens that we eat today look nothing like the chickens that our grandparents once ate. And they look even further disconnected from the wild jungle fowl in which they evolved from. Now, to understand that better, a single broiler chicken in the 1930s might yield two to three pounds of meat. Whereas today, the industrialized version of that broiler will yield over nine pounds of meat. All meat production birds have gone up 300 to 600% in size in just a few generations. These abnormally obese, I mean, abnormally large birds, have incredibly short lifespans. The modern industrial chicken can be raised from hatch to harvest in as little as 38 days. Now, when you start paying attention to the evolution of the poultry industry, you see that there has been a de-evolution of the actual bird. Commodity industrial agriculture is now focused on producing the largest bird in the shortest amount of time with the cheapest amount of inputs. And while some celebrate the modern industrial chicken as production agriculture's greatest accomplishment, it becomes excessively clear that the real expense of this production model is being charged to the actual suffering 
of these sentient beings. It is offset and it is charged to the land that is being both degraded on farm and off farm. And while these expenses are clearly seen in industrial agriculture, there's an additional hidden expense, and that is the cost of our own health. And that shape takes the form of our ability to produce and to consume nourishing food that can actually heal our body. Now, here's the part I bet you didn't see coming. Force of Nature actually just launched an extended line of chicken products. Now, while it might seem counterintuitive and contradictory to everything I just said, we founded Force of Nature on two very principles that this particular topic addresses. First, it's to increase the accountability, the transparency in which consumers can have a trustworthy relationship to the source of their food, removing the blinders, helping people connect at that primal cellular level. And then secondly, this brand is about driving positive change. This is our attempt at elevating the entire chicken industry. And it turns out that the biggest challenge here is to create a new supply chain of feed. So it's that off-farm impact. How do you import fertility, nourishment for these birds, in a form that doesn't degrade the land, that isn't predicated on the image of industrial agriculture and about maximum extraction? What we hope you take from this podcast is an idea that perhaps we shouldn't be eating as much chicken. And the chicken that we do eat needs to be raised dramatically different and it needs to cost significantly more so without any more compulsive talking let's get into this episode i'm joined by my co-founders and my wife that would be robbie casparis sanson and Catherine elizabeth collins formerly known as Catherine elizabeth forrest i hope by now you guys know which one is my wife without further ado enjoy the episode I think it's an important conversation, right? I mean, as when, when the three of us sat down and said, are we really going to do this again? Are we really going to try to start another company and take on all that that entails and requires? Um, you know, we're going to do it for our mission, right? Our mission is regenerative agriculture and obviously ruminants rule the day when it comes to restoring lands and the symbiotic relationships they played in land. But, you know, we all know the background and the truth of, of poultry and, and, and chickens, right? And it's it's a gnarly story. And I think the average consumer doesn't understand it. They don't understand what the issues are, what the challenges are, where, where, where the truth is and reality. And I even think there's like some anthropomorphication of, you know, what we think the chicken is, is, is a beautiful system for chickens may not actually be the best environment and system for them. Um, and, and I think that industry, it's like the smaller, the animal, the worse the industry in terms of welfare, in terms of impact on land, in terms of impact on rural communities, and uh, frankly, in terms of human health as well. And I think that is that also flips the perspective that the average consumer has totally on its on its head. Uh, and for all those reasons, we weren't even sure if we would do poultry at all um, or or monogastrics um, uh, like pork and and, and poultry. Um, but you know, I, I think we all also aligned that like, hey, this it's a massive problem and there's an opportunity to make improvements on it. So then where and how do we think about our role 
and and creating awareness and helping support solutions and moving the bar up and and and, and saying progress in the right direction to address some of those challenges. I mean, in, in my opinion, I feel like I hope after this this conversation that people leave thinking like I shouldn't eat so much chicken. Like I just shouldn't be buying as much chicken. Not only like ethically, spiritually, uh, within like supporting an agricultural system. You know, like there's so many reasons why we just shouldn't be eating chicken. Yeah, you're you're not going to be accused of burying the lead. Like that's that's the that's the major takeaway. Like we should all eat much less chicken, and we should pay way more for it when we do. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So to start, you know, I think it's interesting. What we're going to focus on chicken, but as a listener, you can. Chicken is synonymous for, you know, that monogastric system. So turkeys and pigs. And for people that don't know what a monogastric is, can you first of all clarify what a monogastric is? What makes them unique as monogastrics? And then how does that differentiate from a ruminant animal? You can take it. You're scientific. (laughs) (laughs) I got the nerd gene. Mm -hmm. Uh, So monogastric is going to be an animal with a single compartment stomach. So like you said, poultry, pork, but also humans or horses or rabbits or dogs or cats, uh, you know, most omnivores. And, and effectively, uh, it means they're generally unable to digest as much cellulose food. So what you would see in, in grass, you know, and that's like one of the cool things about a ruminant. They got all the stomachs. They can take grass and upcycle it into this incredible protein source. And most of us can't. That's what makes them magical, super animals. So that, so ultimately monogastrics, like within the meat industry, they typically are supplemented. I mean, I would say 99.99% of the time, monogastrics need to be supplemented with feed. Whereas a ruminant animal, like a cow can just go on pasture and eat grass. Yeah. We get that question a lot too. Are your your chickens grass fed? It's like, no, No. they, they're, they're omnivores. They got a single stomach. They can't really eat the whole, sustain themselves on grass. And we'll dive into what that, what the implication of what you just said is like, how, what is the story behind the feed that is going into these operations that is coming from off of the farm? So, yeah, it sounds like when you raise a monogastric animal, like a chicken, you are reliant on importing feed for that animal. And that feed has consequences on land that's off the farm. Um, There's not a scalable operation where those chickens are consuming hundred percent of their diet on the land that they roam. That just doesn't exist based on the caloric requirements of that animal. I think just prairie chickens, maybe. Like, like wild, wild feral, okay, wild Hawaiian ones. chickens. Yeah, Hawaiian, yeah. Okay, can we take a second to rewind the hands of the clock and go back in time? Because I feel like it was just a few generations ago where chickens actually played a critical role on the farm, where their feed came from the farm. They were there to upcycle protein and to convert that to eggs. It seems like it was only recently that the chicken industry lost their fucking mind. Yeah, well, I mean, chicken originated from jungle fowl. So, like, their original habitat would have been jungle. Um, they thrive in uh, canopy and they thrive consuming a variety of bugs and forage. Um, how you would look at a chicken is um, not like they are not herd species. They are not a herd species, which I love herd species. I feel like that's one of the things I love about a lot of our flocks at our ranch, you know, like turkeys love to be in flocks and bison like to be in herds, but chickens do not like they are, you will never find in nature. I don't, I don't know if you'd even find a hundred chickens together. Like, I think that in nature you would probably find like maybe a dozen chickens together. 
So like this concept of like chickens being a part of a natural ecosystem within the, within an industrial model is just like, it doesn't add up. Like there's no symbiosis of chickens being in mass quantities in nature, just didn't exist. Okay. So take me back pre-industrialization, the historical integration of chickens out on pioneer ranching and farm family farm systems. Yeah. yeah. We just, yeah. we just, just yes. kind of took it back like you did on the Bison podcast before the land bridge, right? This red and green jungle fowl coming from Southeast Asia. Even prairie chickens are really kind of almost more like quail. They're like, they're like native ground birds, Fair. but they're not even like the, they're our chickens of the day didn't descend, didn't descend from, from those, um, from those birds, but they, you know, they did like Europeans did figure out that they could take these animals and they could um, use them to upcycle, you know, their scraps, their food waste. Right. And they could, Hey, part of the year they lay eggs and we can make food from that. And part of the year, if they're not doing that, then, then we, then we can eat them, you know, but you'd have a handful around, you'd have a, you know, the, the coop out back and you'd be um, throwing your scraps out there and, you know, they'd be a part of a multi-species farm where they'd play a really specific role and the scale of it, it wouldn't be the primary driver. It would just be one of many, it would be part of the diversity of whatever that, you know, farming ecosystem was. Um, but eating know. chicken would have been special, you know, like eating their eggs, obviously you can do that every day, but like eating a chicken would be like once a year, twice a year kind of Oh, thing. it was super premium. Like, so, right. so you always hear that quote that was, uh, it's a politi- it was a political ad. It's misunderstood. It's attributed to President Hoover. He never said it. There's a political ad in the 1920s you know, advocating for our political party. Was, I think it was Republicans at the time. You know, we're, we're promoting prosperity and part of, you know, what, what, what the future looks like with us at the helm is a chicken in every pot. And that was an expression that actually originates back in the 16th century. I think it was Henry IV. That was like, I, you know, same, same messaging, same intention, right? Like we're going to be a prosperous society. We're going to be so prosperous that we'll be able to have a chicken in every pot. You know what I mean? Like it was a, it was symbolically special and unique. And it's again, turned into something entirely different today. Okay. After listening to you describe the chicken of uh, the pioneer days, I had this like flashback to a previous life where I was living on the frontier in central texas circa like 1840 gillespie county central texas we got comanche indians still roaming around burning down farms stealing horses and i'm lucky enough to have a couple chickens on my farm uh we we upcycle we feed them our food scraps waste from the garden anything that's not edible for human consumption we give it to the chicken the chicken then converts that to a nourishing egg um that is a gift from god right there and and then a couple, you know, maybe I let a couple eggs get fertilized by a dominant rooster. Those eggs hatch. I get one young hen and then one young uh, male. And then, and so in my mind, I'm like playing God. I'm like, okay, I'm going to let that hen live a long life because I like to eat two eggs instead of one egg. And then that um, male, I'm going to let it get up to some nice size and then I'm going to eat it because he looks like a tasty son of a bitch and I'm going to eat it for some kind of like, celebration, maybe Christmas or Thanksgiving or something where it's like a monumental occasion. And so like right there, I kind of feel like that's like the fork in the road. That's historically how like the laying hen went one way and then the broiler hen went another way. And historically they would have been together on a farm or a ranch. But now in modern industrial agriculture, there is a laying hen industry and a broiler or meat bird industry that are very separate. Speak on that. I'm not, I, I don't know. I don't I, know. Again, this is where our lack of expertise comes into right. play. My <laughs> suspicion would be, um, 
that there, there was birds that were producing eggs and meat and they were managing them accordingly. And that over time, as we began to breed and breed and breed and breed, that's when we started to, I don't know at which point the specialization of a layer versus what we would call, what we'd call now a layer versus a broiler. I don't, I don't know when that, that divergence occurred, but. Right. Um, and I mean, I think it had also probably coincided with how you actually cook chicken. I mean, you could definitely, roosters are delicious so long as you are cooking them a certain way in a pot, um, you know, slow cooking. And so as our um, patience for cooking times have decreased, um, so has, you know, like the, the, it's definitely gone from like layers to broilers now. So what, I, what's a broiler? What's, what's a broiler? So, so I'll take that. So, so I can't I can tell you, we didn't used to have this kind of like, food used to be seasonal. We know that, right? Like you ate the vegetables that were in season, you ate animals when they were in season and so on and so forth. And in poultry, whether it be turkey or chicken, we're, we're no exception. Um, and this is kind of fun because we've all heard the the expression spring chicken, right? And it's like, you just know that means somebody that's like young, like, oh, they're just a spring chicken. Well, that was a broiler, right? It was the young, it was what was then considered a young bird at about 11 weeks. And then as that, as that flock got older, uh, a fryer would be a bird that was 12 to 20 weeks and a roaster would be a bird that was six months or older. And then you'd have a stewing fowl for really special occasions. And that'd be like an older bird, maybe as up to like a year old. And, and that's, uh, you know, that, that's kind of that hierarchy or that, that, that cycle of growth that goes along with the seasons. But it's also why like, you know, for Turkey specifically like Thanksgiving and Christmas later in the year, well, after the spring, you have the opportunity to have, again, once again, a really special meal with your family. You're gathering around this roasting bird. Um, and so that's that's where that, that terminology. Nowadays, we've lost touch with that quality. We've lost touch with the seasonality. It's all industrialized. And so we just produce a bunch of young birds called broilers. And the age of those is even reduced as well. Got it. The way I think of broilers is I, I almost think of broilers more as like a meat bird, whereas I think of a layer as a laying bird. So specifically, let's just moving forward, talk about broilers, because I can, I think we're all a little bit more dialed into that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So with broilers, so when did, so, okay, what happened to where, you know, was it a social shift? Was it an economical change? Why did chickens, like talk about the history of us consuming chicken on a very special rare occasion to now what it looks like where it's probably one of the more prominent proteins that Americans eat. Kelly, where to begin with that? I mean, I, I think certainly the the roots are in industrialization, and um, the smaller the animal, the easier they are it is to control them and their environment. The shorter the life cycle, the more conducive they are to to taking well to the, to, to industrialization and being controlled um, and being dominated, as, as as we say. And I think because chickens were so special and so premium. Um, it was appealing to be able to figure out a way to um, offer them, offer more of them and, and at lower prices. And that kind of, that kind of led to this race to progress, right? How do we, how do we create larger breasts? How do we reduce the growing cycle? So I can, instead of, you know, getting, you know, har- harvesting chickens four times a year, I can harvest them seven times a year. Um, how do we make the the birds bigger? How do we make sure the feathers are white so that you don't you don't see the little pin feathers that are left behind? And you know we began this like rush for selective breeding. And even in the 1940s is when they had the the chicken of tomorrow competition um, to help with that. You know, kind of to create some incentives behind those breeding programs. You want to elaborate on that? 
No, I mean the is it was it called the Chicken of Tomorrow? For some reason, I thought I thought it was called the Chicken of the Future. Chicken of the Future. Sorry, was it you're Chicken right. of the Future. Yeah. I don't know. Um, the the idea behind Chicken of the Future was to see who could create the fastest growing bird with the biggest breasts in the shortest amount of time with you know least amount of inputs, least amount of feed inputs, um, and you know the the focus really was on like breast size and not organ health, not skeletal development, not on flavor. And so what we sort of, I don't want to say accidentally, I mean, what we purposefully did, not we, not me, um, was we removed um, the animal welfare component of like growing a a healthy bird out of the equation. Um, And we removed flavor out of the equation. And we just went with strict size and efficiency. Yeah. Efficiency over resilience, right? Because you know, again, it, it, with the history of having a role of helping to upcycle protein and take waste and turn it into something, you know, that you can utilize and then, it's, you know, still offering a service on the farm in the form of fertilizer and stuff like that. It went to, well, we can't really eat, we can't really thrive and accomplish those efficiency goals, those feed conversion goals on a diverse diet. So it, they began to specialize on, okay, what, what can be, what is cheap to produce and what is abundant to produce? And that became, you know, effectively what we see today in corn and soy and these grains. And so then it, it, it's kind of like a two headed monster, like, okay, well, let's create, let's, let's super commodify corn and grain. So they become insanely cheap and then engineer effectively, uh, an animal that will be hyper optimized and hyper efficient, um, to converting that into weight gain really fast and nothing else matters. It doesn't, like you said, it doesn't matter if it tastes good. It doesn't matter if it's healthy. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, if it doesn't matter if it suffers, as long as it can get really big, really fast. And they even found in that process, um, they found a few, like a few birds that kept that, that had an illness. Um, it was a mutated gene that would cause them to get severely obese really rapidly and die because they were sick. And they started studying that gene as like a, a model for human illness and human obesity to understand like what is what's going on and what's this problem and then you know some enterprising scientists figured out hey wait a minute if we can take this disease gene and we can breed it into this cycle we can make a bird that gets really fat really fast and we can help accomplish these weight gain goals and again further kind of drifting down like wait a minute are we where are we headed with this you know what, what's the end game here um, is this really in service to our you know, community into the land of the animal and the, is this what consumers want? Or is this just a way to sell more pounds of protein and do it at a lower cost? And then I think to your question about like what happened, then I think somehow somewhere, you know, like there, there became like the chicken lobby that was like white meat's the way to go. It's better than red meat. Um, eat more chicken. It's, you know, cows are bad, you know, they burp and you know, the, the, the globe explodes and, you know, and so it became like the savior, the original state before impossible burger and beyond burger, it became the savior to the anti-meat movement. And like the stats are crazy just on how much chicken consumption exploded over that period of time. Okay. Let's go to some stats. Talk about the consumption of chicken, how it's changed over time. Talk about what is this industrialized modern bird? What's the lifespan? How does it grow? Um, Tell me a little bit about that stuff. You're the stat man. I'll, I'll do the, okay. Well, we'll start with the, just the numbers. Cause I already kind of, um, intro that, um, <clears throat> so the, 
I, I didn't. I wasn't able to find as many numbers on on pre nineteen sixty, but I did find some that said like pre World War II, the average uh, American would have eaten about fifteen pounds of chicken per year. Um, that number increased to about, about remember the chicken of the future competition nineteen forties. That number had uh, <clears throat> more than doubled in nineteen sixty to about thirty four pounds per person. At that same time in 1960, we would have eaten about 133 pounds of beef. So 133 pounds of beef to 34 pounds of, uh, of poultry in, in 1960. Fast forward to 2023, our beef consumption is down 80 to, to 82% of what it was. So we only eat uh, about 100 um, and <clears throat> sorry, my computer just closed on me. Uh, we only eat about 109 pounds uh, of, of, of beef compared to eating 133 pounds. Nowadays, though, we eat 118 pounds of poultry. So that's 347% the amount of poultry that we had ate just one generation ago, which is crazy, right? Now we're eating significantly less beef and three and a half times more poultry. And what does that mean in terms of like living sentient beings? In 2017, uh, we ate a lot of beef. We had we ate 32 million head of cattle. So if you're PETA and you're listening, 32 million cows died in the United States or in the globally? United States. Okay, 32 million cows died to feed us. So oh man, <clears throat> you know vegetarians, you know got it, got it, got it going there for the loss of lives. But we ate nine billion chickens, billion with a B, chickens compared to 32 million head of cattle. So that is a hell of a lot more loss of life. Um, uh, that that equates to about 42 billion pounds of poultry versus 26 billion pounds of beef. So somehow we went from living and sustaining ourselves, you know, post um, agricultural revolution on ruminants and beef to turning that on its head and and through the benefits and the the the, the miracle of industrialization, being able to mass produce chicken to the point where we eat almost twice as much. Um, or about fifty percent more chicken than we than we do beef, which is to me like one of the foundational problems with with chicken and poultry. It's that you know we talk a lot about um, natural systems, thriving ecosystems, living evolutionarily consistent lives. This is not consistent with evolution. This is not consistent with nature. Like these populations of of birds never existed, never in this species, never in these systems. It's entirely artificial, and the whole our, our consumption of chicken is is way out of whack with any sort of balanced model, which is why we say we should eat way less chicken, right? We should eat way less chicken for that reason. And then for all the shortcuts that we took, you know, we need to, we need to peel that back to make sure the chicken that we do eat is coming from a, 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 a thriving, healthy system that can work to begin to be more regenerative. And that means you're probably going to have to pay a higher price for it. But these low prices of the day are propped up through lots of shortcuts and wrongdoing that we took to get where we are. So damn near all chicken that we eat today, which was once called the chicken of the future in the 1940s, um, it's called the Cornish cross. Now, this chicken was engineered by humans to dominate the chicken industry. And it's so common that 99% of all chicken that you have ever eaten or have ever met is likely a Cornish cross. This chicken would never have evolved in nature and it can hardly survive in nature. So can you elaborate on this broiler chicken, this meat bird and touch on its interesting history? 
the Cornish cross, you know, as I said earlier, it was, it was built for, um, breast size. It was built for growing times. Um, but another thing is, is it was really built for the industrial model. So it was really built for confinement. Um, like these birds really do, they, I don't want to say thrive because I'm not sure they thrive at all, but if they're going to thrive in life, they're going to thrive inside because that's the sort of the model that they were built intended to be built for. Um, and so like putting these birds outside is actually kind of cruel in a really weird way. I heard this on, I was listening to a podcast with Kate Kavanaugh on grounded. What's it? What ground up from the ground up? What's her? Groundwork. Um, and that she had this incredible turkey guy on and he was saying, he, he really opened my eyes to this idea that like, it's actually like inhumane to put Cornish cross birds on pasture because they're so poorly built. They're so poorly developed. Their bone structure is so poor, their organ development and the overdevelopment of their breasts puts them at a disadvantage being outside. Cause you remember when we raised Cornish crosses, cause we were doing it as an experiment, like these birds, they like to be sitting down. They like to be laying on those breasts and just sitting right next to a feeder. Like they don't want to be running around. They don't want to be catching bugs. Maybe like in their souls they do, but they're in, they're trapped inside these little Cornish cross bodies. So, uh, you know, like the Cornish cross bird was is truly truly meant for confinement, which is you know like in our our opinion is unethical in the first place and inhumane. This this idea of confinement. I I think too like again they're like they're the they're like at the pinnacle of this like whole art artificial system right and so. Even today, like you, you don't, people don't, you don't breed Cornish cross. You, you buy them largely from, from two companies like Cobb and, and Avagen. Um, and, and they, and they own like, they own the genes. So they own like 98% of the supply and these things can't even, even breed themselves. Right. Like they are not, they are not natural. You can't say that you have a Cornish cross bird and it's coming from a natural system. They don't have a natural life cycle. They can't even exist or live on their own. They can't breed on their own. They don't even attempt to evade predation. Mm-hmm. Right. You will, and and they only exist and their primary instinct, they're bred for their primary instinct to be eating and to be little aggressive eating machines to convert, you know, feed like we talked about. And it's really puts them on a terminal and unsustainable trajectory. Right. Like they eat until they die. And that and that's what they're that's their purpose, because that's what they were engineered by humans to do. And so they're not even like really animals that have characteristics of natural life anymore. Like to your point, Katie, like they will sit at a feed trough or or a little feed station while another chicken comes up behind it and pecks at its rear end, eating its feathers and its butt and and its meat effectively harming it. It won't try to run away. It won't try to defend itself. It'll just sit there and keep eating. Like there's nothing natural about these things. It's so sad. uh, It is really sad. But at the same time, like I... Every time that we talk about Cornish cross, we always talk so much shit about them. And like, we're always like, oh, those fucking fat, pathetic chickens. But like they, they're still like living beings, you know, like they're still, they still have soul. And that's kind of sad. I I think what's amazing too, it's in it. People don't recognize this, but with those Cornish cross industrial birds that the lifespan is five to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. They don't live much past eight weeks because they, their bodies the biological system collapses, the organs fail, the bone structures will will give up and they'll break because the weight of the animal cannot be sustained by the skeletal structure. We we had a Cornish cross named Splits and her legs were broken. That's true. Splits, R.I.P. The um, 
you, you hear a story from from some folks that say like you know it's time to take your birds to process once they you know the Cornish crossbirds once they can no longer walk to get feed or water, which is so just, sad. Just an awful thing to consider, um, and the it it. it the you, t- you know, I had mentioned early on in the podcast that a broiler used to be, you know, harvestable at 11 weeks. And now you said it's like down to five, five to eight weeks. I think the, the, do you know what the, uh, the largest fast food company in the world is? I would have guessed Walmart. McDonald's. It's Chick-fil-A. <laughs> wow. It's Chick-fil-A now. Bigger than McAdee's? Yeah. And they're even, and they're even harvesting them at, at 30, uh, 38 days now. So what is that? Like just barely, barely five weeks. And it's like, cause they want the smaller, the little wings, the little, and it needs to all be consistent. In fact, uh, historically, like those old, those old school stats I gave, like people would be buying whole chickens or they'd be raising them, frankly, but then they'd be buying them and you'd be making use of them. If you wanted cuts, you'd cut them up. But now only 11% of the industry is, is, is whole birds and almost you know, 60 or 70% of the industry is even going into like food service, these, these fast food chains. Which is crazy because you're, you're going to get the most nutrients and the most um, effective use out of the animal. If you're using the whole bird, you know, like you could eat the entire animal, boil the bones, boil the bones twice. You know, I mean, like there's so much more you can do with the whole. You get the most, you get also, you also get more nutrients from an older animal. Right. Right. Like an older animal has had processed more nutrients and deposited that nutrients into their larger muscles and more sturdy bones. And that's what makes meat darker and darker and darker. That's why you like, you look at wild game and you see that really dark color. And then you look at maybe some farm raised stuff that's younger and it has more of a pink color. It's like right. the more dark, the more nutrient dense. And in fact, you know, that you referenced that, that, that podcast, you know, they were saying that the, the nutrient density, you'd have to eat almost three, four, maybe five times, five birds today to get the same nutrition as a bird from the forties or fifties or pre-world oh, so War II. I think it's, I've, I've read and I've heard people say that even cookbooks, pre-industrialization of the chicken it was you know like your fanciest french chefs or julia childs would be like all you need to make your chicken badass is a little bit of sea salt Mm. and like who eats salted chicken now no you have to just glaze it in some kind of sugar you have to baste it and something to actually make it taste good just put every seasoning you have in your cupboard and you're basically it's like a blank palette it's like a blank slate you're 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 imparting your own creativity onto that chicken with which your own I think is what, one of the reasons why we got to this point you know like people chefs love a blank slate when they're cooking something you know like oh I, I probably just insulted Morgan and some other people <laughs> you know like I imagine it's all about flavor and it's like either you utilize the flavor that's in the animal or you create a flavor and unfortunately like the Cornish cross is void of flavor and enjoyment i feel like chefs good chefs celebrate high quality ingredients and when you know when greed and and economics take you down the path that lead to a bird that is effectively a little feed conversion machine that becomes a carrier for fry batter or buffalo wing sauce you got to find creative ways to make it taste good um Have you guys noticed that um, uh, the modern Cornish cross industrial chicken kind of looks like the average American? Like there's some similarities. Fat, (laughs) sedentary, unimpressive. Unhealthy, inflammatory diseases. They they eat everything that's in sight. They They would definitely get eaten. They totally need somebody to take care of them. For sure would get eaten by a predator without trying. 
That's pretty wild. Weak. Big old blubbery thighs, but skinny little ankles and calves. I love America. I'm just really sad with what I see when I go out, out places. So I know we need to move on from breed, but I think it's really important that people understand that these Cornish crossbirds are quite literally anytime that you're going to order chicken from a restaurant or buy chicken from the grocery store, whether it's Walmart or Whole Foods, you know, like you are buying a Cornish crossbird. Even if it's organic, even if it's organic, pasture raised. Um, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So we might not even recognize or understand the true potential, the flavor of a chicken. Correct. Okay. We're going to take a break and provide you with a little seed of hope. So head over to forceofnature.com and check out the brand new chicken products that we're selling. Now, our chickens are different than these industrial Cornish cross breeds in that we are raising a cross between heritage Transylvania naked necks a Heritage Delaware, and a genetics from the Peterson family line of the 1940s. Now, these heirloom pioneer birds are selected for leg strength, bone density, immune system health, the propensity to explore the outdoors, and most importantly, in my opinion, especially if you're looking for really delicious food, is the flavor is unlike anything you've ever had in your life. You might fall in love with chicken. So if you want to see what chicken tasted like, Back in your grandparents or great-grandparents' time, head over to forceofnature.com and have that sucker shipped right to your doorstep. And now back to the episode. So, and, and, and like you said, like the bird itself, it's a living soul. It's not evil, right? But the system, this, this particular bird was bred to be entirely dependent on an, a whole system that I think fundamentally has, has been a represents a, a strong deviation from the path that we should be on, right? And so the reason that we are opposed to working with and sourcing from producers that use Cornish Cross is because the implication is that for that bird to live, the implication is that that bird requires really cheap industrial monocrop feed. It requires it be put into you know systems that I don't think are natural and I don't believe are really a representation of what I would what I would want to see in a regenerating and, and, and balanced ecosystem. Um, and I want to find a way to, to peel back the layers and reverse some of the wrongdoings of the past. And that means we got to start working on a bird that has healthy bone structures, that has healthy organ development, that can actually thrive on a diverse feed so we can begin to create a regenerative feed supply that can live in a system where it'll avoid predation and it can be outside and it can be harmonizing with nature. And the Cornish cross just isn't that bird. Except it, right now the Cornish cross is everywhere. And so we got to change that. So that seems like a huge issue with the modern industrial bird. It's like you have this on farm. Or I wouldn't even know if I would call the production at scale of Cornish crosses farms, right? They're more factories. And you guys have been to some of those. So tell me about maybe that experience. What does it look like to go into a chicken house? The, the, <laughs> it is like it's more of a lab than a house. That's a too friendly of a term. Yeah. I mean, um, you're wearing a full body suit, including on your feet, hairnets, like a face hazmat covering, suit? pretty much a hazmat Effectively. suit. Effectively. Yeah. There's a lot of ammonia. There's chemicals in the air. So you got to think it's, it's a, it's a barn. Um, and it's not that big and there's probably 50,000 birds in there. And where in nature would you find 50,000 chickens? nowhere and 
compacted into something that's roughly the size of like two or three of your houses side by side. Well, if all these chickens are in there and they're pretty much all genetic clones of one or another, how do they keep the chickens alive if there's a, a disease or a virus that comes through that house? That's part of the point of yeah. the hazmat suit. Part of it's to protect you, and part of it's to protect them. You have to you have to walk through um, a, a little dish to knock to knock off any pathogens off your feet. Like they're super um, bio secure, right? Um, and you know, there's there's a huge fear of that because something could easily wipe through it. Particularly because the environment is set up the way that you said: sick birds that are all genetically the same that aren't thriving. Um, everything about it is artificial. The airflow is artificial. The lighting is artificial and the feed supply is perfectly curated and artificial as well. Staged to their growing cycle. It's all part of a formula. Well, and the chickens are part of the pharmaceutical industry, industrial complex. Why, why is that? Because of like the use of antibiotics or gross hormones. Yeah. Right. I mean, to keep these birds alive they within the super industrialized model. I mean, they're all given antibiotics preventatively. Yeah. To keep them so they to don't... keep them alive to five weeks. Yeah. Okay. Even if they make an, an ABF free claim, antibiotic free claim, which there are, there that's a growing number. They're just finding another creative alternative to try to, keep. you know, engage in uh, germ warfare. Right. And and those are growth promotants too. Anything to make them grow faster. Right. Yeah. So you might have already touched on this, but just to elaborate on it, like let's go. We talked about what the industrial um, chicken. Uh, uh, like what would we call it? Like, um, like what were the torture prisons? I don't know. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Is, like what do they put prisoners of war in? In like concentration camps? Yeah. Okay, that might be a little harsh. But so we have the I the mean, modern maybe not, industrial though. concentration camp for chickens. And we talked about what that looks like. But what does what does it look like to go out to the off farm impact? So. The farms where the feed is grown and then exported, maybe sometimes across the country, across the globe to feed these chickens. What does that actually look like? Yeah, I feel like everything is pulling the blinders back off of consumers and I hope it blows their minds. But to me, this is one of the biggest ones, right? I mean, I think this is the most important th part of the whole entire equation. Like this, yeah. is, this is everything is feed. The, well, it's, it's the, the feed comes from industrial, monoculture, row crop, typically chemically intensive operations. It's the very thing that we have pledged to fight against. Um, you know, with with our own in our own personal lives and the work that y'all do at, at Rome Ranch and what we're doing together and who and how we're trying to support rege the regenerative food movement with force of nature. Like we are fighting <laughs> monocrop <laughs> agriculture. And the only way that the current chicken and, and, and turkey and overall poultry and monogastric system exists is because of monocultures of really, really fucking cheap, shitty corn and soy feed. Yeah, for, for every one acre that is impacted by living birds, it takes 40 acres of industrial monocrop. I'm going to say devastation. Um, so that's huge. You know, a lot of there's so many different uh, claims and certifications and verifications out there that, you know, like I don't know how you could ever say that a chicken or a pig could ever be regenerative until this, this system, this feed system is solved. And I've, I've heard the, the one to 40 number as well. So like, you know, I don't know if that number is accurate, but like, I know definitively everybody acknowledges in the poultry industry and otherwise the 
more land is impacted by the the, the the growing of the feed supply than where the where the birds live. And there's a and, and it's good. There's a lot of focus on on the land where the birds live. There's a lot of focus on their welfare. There's a lot of focus for folks trying to make a difference and trying to be better. There's a lot of focus on the ecological impact and and the style and way to do that, which we'll discuss some of those. But it's the feed often gets ignored, almost always gets ignored, and it is the bigger impact. And it again. It's the bigger impact, not just on, let's just say it is for every one acre that's housing chicken, it is 40 acres of growing food. That 40 acres is being tilled. It has carbon emissions. It causes water runoff. It causes soil erosion. It's probably being sprayed with amendments and chemicals five times a year, which are going into our water rays and going into our ocean. So it's like that 40 can actually be hundreds or more, you know, like how, where does it stop whenever you're relying on these artificial systems to prop up your, your, your model? So back to even Katie's point about are chickens regenerative, um, two things. But first of all, I, I guess you can make the argument that, yes, my my poultry, my monogastric is regenerative because it's regenerating my land that they're on and I'm managing in a holistic way. Just but, like our ranch. But what you're saying is that's not the true cost accounting because there's the off-farm impact that is greater than the on-farm benefits. Right. I mean, like the chickens and the the turkeys on our ranch make our land better. And it's very obvious, you know, like their physical presence on our land. Um, we have seen great improvements in uh, bug count, bird count, uh, diversity of species, soil health, et cetera, et cetera. But then when you think about like the feed that we're actually bringing in to feed them, like we can't discount that, you know, so they, they do have a positive impact on the land. They can have a positive impact on the land. The Cornish cross that we've been talking about typically don't. Um, but ultimately you can't say like, well, it stops here. They, they can be, they can absolutely be part of a regenerative farm and have totally. and contributing to ecosystem services and biomimicry. But until we look at it holistically, and look at the impact where it stands and the impact uh, of the systems that, you know, um, are producing the food that it relies on. I don't think we can make the claim that that animal is a regenerative animal, even I, though your farm's regenerative. Sure. Okay, guys, it's pretty apparent to me that scale is the problem. It's the industrialization and it doesn't fit with any ecological context. It doesn't mimic nature. So there's got to be some people out there pioneering. There's got to be some innovation. What can we do to improve upon the current industrial system? Well, I think that there's really amazing people doing really amazing things in the poultry world. Um, I, I would say that there's like three primary, I want to call it, I'm like in quoting like solutions at scale currently. Um, the first one would be, pasture on range with mobile coops. Okay, let's take a moment to illustrate for me to describe what a mobile range coop looks like because we actually used one of these. We purchased one about six years ago out at Rome Ranch and there's a lot to like about them and then there's a lot of improvements to be made on the system. But basically when you're looking at one, it looks like a large greenhouse. So there's a galvanized steel frame. It's covered end to end in white polyethylene, which is a plastic covering. It's dome shaped on the top. So if you don't know what a greenhouse looks like, I guess you could also say it looks like a Quonset hut. But I have a feeling that might confuse more people. So let's go with the greenhouse. So this greenhouse has been retrofitted to have large skids on the bottom. 
It allows for a tractor or a four by four to hook up to it and actually pull this large chicken coop, which also some people call a chicken tractor, an entire length's distance. So you can move it every single day. You're moving those chickens and you're moving that animal impact. The bottom of that mobile range coop is just open pasture. Now, it's about seven feet of head clearance on the inside. The dimensions are about 20 feet by 36 feet. Now, a mobile range coop this size cost around $10,000 and is rated for about 800 broiler chickens. Everything has been thought out and it involves minimum labor as well. You know, the water inside, the feeders inside, those are all on pressurized lines as well as typically automated. So it needs very little human management. Now, the last thing I'll say about these mobile range coops is every day after you move them, you have to put some freaking tornado tie down bolts into the earth so that a strong wind doesn't blow this son of a bitch 300 feet in the air, killing all your birds, which that has happened out here at Rome Ranch. And then there's another model, which is like unrestricted access to pasture or range with a fixed barn situation. All right, let me take a moment to add some color and illustrate what these fixed barns filled with chickens that have unrestricted access to pasture actually looks like. So these are significantly larger structures than your mobile range coop, typically 40 to 50 feet wide by up to 500 feet long. Now these are rated to hold up to 20,000 broiler chickens. These barns are typically created with some kind of galvanized steel, when the chickens are inside, which is at nighttime, the bedding or the floor is filled with some kind of pine shavings or mulch. There are automated watering systems, automated feeders inside the barn. And the way it typically works is in the morning, a farmer arrives and opens up large garage doors or large barn doors that are spread throughout wall to wall of this fixed coop. That encourages the chickens to go outside. They will then move feeders and waterers outside. So when, again, the chickens are motivated to explore and to scratch and to express all their biological desires. Now, the large fixed barns with unrestricted access to range that we have visited, they're pretty cool because they're in environments that have incorporated silvopasture. So the chickens are allowed to tap into their jungle fowl roots and fly up in trees and scratch through mulch and leaves and have unrestricted access to bugs and free movement. At the end of the day here, most of the chickens return back to the fixed barns and the doors are closed to protect them from predators. And then, you know, there's your small scale solutions, which would be, you know, like Rome Ranch, we have 300 turkeys or whatever, you know, like very, very small, not scalable type of solutions. Seems like those are the less industrialized, the small scale. Yes. Yes, yeah. definitely. And there's pros and cons to all of these models. And we can go into those. Yeah. I mean, the small scale, that, that makes sense. I, You know, we love small scale emulation of mother nature. And that's wonderful. And that should support on-farm families or small communities all day long. That's the way to do it. But what we're talking about is, you know, how do we produce billions of chickens if people are committed to eating chickens? Even though I think it's pretty clear by now that people should be eating less chickens. We can't iterate that enough. But that supply, that demand is there. 
So with those first two options, tell me a little bit about the pros and the cons of each. Um, okay. Well, you want to start with mobile coops? Sure. Yeah. I mean, mobile coops are really cool in the sense that you can get like super high imp- like animal impact, super dense, high animal impact um, by having your animals super confined, you know, so it's, it's, it's technically confinement. The animals are within a confined coop and then you can move it whenever you want. And so you can, re- it's a, there's a lot of control within it. And so, you know, like we use these coops when we were first trying to figure out how to do chickens and, you know, the birds would pass like a whole hundred yard area and then we would push them onto the next. And those areas would have incredible growth and they would be so much more healthy than just, you know, like four feet away where the chickens were not. Um, so that, you know, these range coops, they do provide ecosystem services in a sense. Which yeah, I, and I think like, especially it may not be, you know, what, what, what you would see in nature, but I think like in recovering cropland, you know, this is high loads of nitrogen getting put down as an alternative to spraying, you know, chemical fertilizer. Yeah. Right. So like there's, there's a pro there. There's something interesting and, and appealing about that, even if, you know, again, it wouldn't be so you, you can't rewind the clock back and see that playing out in a historical context like you can bison roaming the continent. Right. I think another pro, too, would be like the it's harder for predators, birds of prey to take off the take out those chickens on yeah. open pasture. Uh, but then even like coyotes and other varmints will have a more challenging time accessing those chickens because they are technically confined. Yeah. And another pro is that this model, um, it allows for like a multi-species operation to exist. It's That doesn't mean that it does. You know, there's plenty of poultry operators that use these mobile coops and don't have a multi-species operation, but it allows for it to exist, which is extra cool. Yeah. And I think to your point too, like, you know, I can see that t- Taylor as a, as, a, as a pro, pro and a con, right? Protecting that confinement that Katie referenced also means there it's also protection. So that a lower death loss number means the farmer can afford to offer the bird at a lower cost. You know, it's part of the way that you drive down costs and 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 to consumers is, you know, if you lose twenty percent of your animals, the few that make it, you got to charge more for. I will say that the this this scenario, this pasture on range or on. Um, with mobile coops, uh, the majority of the ones that I feel like are at a scale that's even recognizable to a consumer, you know, like a consumer might go purchase it at the grocery store, for instance. Again, these are Cornish crossbirds. So, you know, it's it's a Cornish crossbird. Not, not every time, but but very yeah. often. The scaled ones are. The scaled ones. That's I what hate, I was I saying. I hate absolutes, right? But, but you're right. Like more often than not, we're talking Cornish cross. So one at the grocery store that you buy that's, per, that's produced that in this. That says pasture raised. Yep. With a mobile range coop. With a mobile range coop is going to be a Cornish crossbird. And, and like we talked about earlier, you know, the Cornish crossbirds do thrive in confinement. Like they don't thrive outside. And this is an outside model. So putting these birds on pasture is, um, what did that guy say? He, he, he said it was inhumane and, and like torturing it and torturing them. Well, I mean, I think you have, you have personal experience with an example of that. We've already said these birds are sick and sedentary. They won't evade predation or threat. They certainly don't want to move. They just sit down and eat. So like, tell me what happens when these birds are really old, uh, advanced in their life cycle, getting older, getting bigger and fatter, and you want to move that range coop. They get run over out the back. 
Yeah. And and now that we have this conversation, I'm thinking about like some really pretty uh, mobile range coops I've seen on Instagram. And they always show the birds when they're like really cute young. little chicks. Cutie pies. Like, you know, within that one to three week window where they can actually move. Right. That's a little deceptive if you actually think about it. Because they're definitely not showing that into life what it looks like. So I guess we're kind of going into the cons. Yeah, what they're else? not showing this isn't perfect. Out the back. This is for sure progress. It's not perfection. We shouldn't let perfection get in the way of progress. But what what else about this system maybe doesn't work? I, I think there's like you said, I, I mean, I want I think we should all emphasize it there. Like anybody that is trying to break the mold of, of the conventional model, the industrial model that's so awful and terrible deserves deserves credit. So I hate to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. But I you know, and again, none of these systems are perfect. You know, I, th- there are things about this that I'm not personally and particularly fond of. And guess what? We get to run our company, so we get to make these decisions. And that's part of this podcast. What do we like about this model? But what do we find challenging? And frankly, this isn't the model we're supporting. And so we're getting to our explanation for why. I, I think we've already highlighted some of the cons as we've talked about some of the pros and, and their counterbalancing um, points. But I, I think that the living environment, it's interesting, right? Like I talked to, about it what we think is beautiful and romantic and pretty about the way a system works. And like, we think of these poultry animals as, as ruminants and, and cows and cattle. We want them to be out on, on the range and, and in space, but that's not what they are. They're again, they're jungle fell. They, they get comfort, they get safety. They feel reduced stress when they're elevated off of the ground, particularly, particularly in actual pasture, which incur- incorporates herbaceous plants and shrubs and trees or silva pasture even they like the canopy for protection and so forcing them to live their lives on dirt and forcing them to move where they can't return back to the same place that they feel safety and a a, a reduction in stress from is is a bit of a cruel uh way to treat these animals yeah one thing whenever we've been doing all this investigative work again over the last year one thing that really had a really big impact on me is when somebody told us how important it was that chickens and and, and turkeys and poultry in general, they like to go back to the same exact roosting spot every single night. Um, And so you think about moving these coops, A, they're not roosting, and then B, they're moving to a new spot every night. So there's the amount of stress that that induces. Sad. They get diseases on their feet sometimes from the excess moisture. Mm -hmm. So it even dawns on me that some of these companies that support this model even put free range claims on their package. Which, right. When when we're describing this system, what is free range about being confined on an old farm field? Right. I, I mean, I feel like Robbie describes it really well. I mean, the way that he always talks about this, I guess I should just let you talk about it. But, you know, this is essentially an industrialized model with an open floor. Like they have grass underneath them instead of barn. Yeah. And slightly, slightly more transparent walls. Yeah. Maybe. And those Maybe. are the, you know, if you think about it, if you close your eyes and you, you sit inside, they're like, if they can't, if they can't or don't ever leave the confines, they are confined. It is a coop. They are cooped up inside. Um, and if the, and if the, the ground moves, that's something it's noteworthy. Um, and, but, but I, I think, you know, if, if I'm a consumer, like a lot of this comes back to semantics, it comes back to terminology, pastured, free range, unrestricted acts, all these things, right? USDA does a dog shit job in regulating anything. They basically don't care. They basically say, define what, define it yourself, define what you want. And people, 
find hills that they want to die on and attack everybody that sees anything different than they do. I, I try to think of it from the consumer's perspective and like what ultimately does a consumer really want? I think that a, a consumer wants a healthy bird. Um, that is living in an environment that is really curated and designed for that animal to thrive in. Um, and they have safety and they have freedom of choice. They can stay in a structure if that makes them feel safe, or they can leave that structure and roam at their discretion, um, you know, subject to whatever may happen to them in the wild, predation or otherwise. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we can, we can talk about in a second about what might create that, allow for that environment and create that bird that thrives in, the, in that environment, right? But I think that's what consumers think when they see a, a, a pasture-raised claim, which I think in the eyes of the average consumer is the most elevated claim in, in poultry or in, in meat in general. And it just gets kind of brought into the poultry world, maybe, in a, maybe a bit inappropriately. Um, but I think that's what we're thinking of. We're not thinking of something that is kept to within a you know, constrained to, again, some sort of a barn, which by whatever mechanism it moves, if they can't ever leave it, they don't ever leave it. And all that really changes is the floor. Just, it just, that just feels like one of the cons for a system that again, does have some pros, but it's one that makes me less impressed by it. Well, in addition to just, you know, like we've been talking about this mobile coop, but one thing that we haven't addressed is the majority of the majority, if not all of these systems also rely upon industrialized feed, just like we talked about. So the Cornish cross bird within these industrials, these industrial mobile coops still rely upon the industrialized feed system upon which we were just discussing is probably the most important part of this whole discussion. Yeah. So to, to, to recap this, this, there's a lot of, ver there's a lot of versions, even of this version of the solution, right? right. So we don't intend to disparage any of those folks. Again, if you're a consumer listening, don't go to the grocery store and buy an industrial bird. Before you do that, you should support one of these farmers before going and buying a super duper conventional one. But you should be aware of what you're buying in the, in the form of a chicken and what the pros and cons of, of each of these systems are. And no system should get a free pass if they're not putting any effort into addressing the feed supply. And the feed supply is, is the elephant in the room that folks need to start acknowledging. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the mobile range coop model before we move on is in industrial agriculture to bring down the price of a product, there's different levers that are frequently pulled. And one of those levers is removing humans from that model, from that equation. Robbie says it's like the difference between agriculture and agribusiness. And what I am worried about when I look at the future of this model, I've seen multinational companies using technology to quote unquote, innovate to where humans can be removed from that system. Humans don't even need to go out and hook up a tractor to pull a movable range coop, but it moves every single day on its own autonomously, which to me, that's fucking weird. Like I, I don't, I don't, I want someone to put their eyes on the birds, to have their feet on the ground where they are, to make judgment calls, to look after the welfare of those animals, but to fully remove humans from that system, that's like to me, that doesn't resonate well. I think, what I think if there's, there's a, a lot camera of... in the mobile coop? Does that make you feel better? You can watch think, your birds? Or a robot. I think that's like, again, this points back to one of the big challenges with poultry, though, is it has become so cheap. So cheap. I mean, legitimately, when we say you should pay more for poultry, you should be paying like three or four times more. Not three or four percent or 30 or 40 percent, 300 or 400 percent more. And for farmers, like, 
I think folks endeavor to be better and are trying all sorts of innovations to see, okay, well, how can we make one step forward, but also still be mindful of the fact that consumers love this insanely cheap chicken. And I think like keeps coming back to buy less chicken, pay more for it, buy less chicken, pay more for it. If we're willing to, to pay more for it, then folks don't need to produce as much of it and they don't have to take shortcuts to try to automate their way to to a better bird, right? But I think that I think the intention behind those innovations is, well, it's a way to keep the human cost down, right? And it's sad because the most industrial model and the the worst offenders, the biggest bad actors like the Tysons out there, you know, have left a a trail of failed farms and indebted bankrupt families and suicides and awful um, hopelessness. Uh, behind them. And we have to make sure that it's not just prosperity for the land and the animals, but also for the, the rural communities and the farmers and um, and the folks that are raising those animals. And so there needs we need to make sure the system is building um, resiliency and hope for them as well. Okay. <clears throat> Let's officially move forward. So we're looking at, we just spent a good amount of time talking about the mobile range coop model, pros and cons, right? Uh, Force of nature made a very intentional decision we, we looked in, we explored that model and supporting that and, and focusing our energy and our efforts to help support that. But we made a decision not to, and we moved to this other model. And I'd like for you guys to, to explain that model. What does it look like? And then again, just like we did with mobile range coops, what are the pros and the cons? It's not perfect by any means. Definitely cons, uh, but but definitely pros. So, you know, I think the Katie you know, gave the, gave the, the rundown. So this would be unrestricted access to range within fixed barns. Um, and so, you know, I think some of the, the, the pros are, uh, you know, Hold on, what does it look like? Is, yeah. yeah. What does it look like? Put a visual here. For someone who's never seen one of these. Yeah. How so about visualize the force of nature supply chain and describe that. I mean, I guess you could pull up some video or we could add videos to your show notes. Show notes. Get fancy. <laughs> um, I think the, that's what they're called. So it's it's you know some of these are 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 literally old uh, poultry barns. Some of them are new uh, um, new engineering and new architecture, new designs for for a different barn. But what what they have in common is the barn doesn't move. Um, but what it does have is walls that open up uh, in some way or fashion. And the idea behind that is there's a, there's a humane component to it, right? You have lower loss of life. Um, because they have that protection, they can go in and roost at night and be safe. It's not moving. Um, so they get the familiar place that they get to go back to again, you know, folks that might have be following this podcast and know us probably have hunted turkeys and get the fact that turkeys roost in the same tree for much of the year. Right. I mean, it's the same, the same sort of a concept, um, weather protection, uh, hot, cold, wet, um, all, all the things, but then those walls open up. Uh, and the and the birds have the option to to run outside. Um, and the you know what happens outside matters a lot as well. And so you'll see a lot of um, hazelnut uh, hazelnuts planted because uh, these birds again this the land isn't moving, so the birds are impacting it greatly. Well, hazelnuts consume a lot of nitrogen, so birds are going to put down a lot of nitrogen. So you'll see hazelnuts, you'll see fruit trees, you'll see shade structures, you'll see feed and water outside, um, and you'll see trees. Again, these are the descendants of jungle fowl. They deserve trees. They love trees. And Katie, you've you've been there, right? And so we've sat there um, and watched the you know the first thing in the morning when the doors open, 
um, you've seen the birds go rushing out and they go straight into the forest. It's, it's hilarious. We have tons of videos of it. Um, and so have I painted a good enough picture? Yeah, except I, I can't imagine. I thought we just spent the last like hour talking about how Cornish crosses don't run into the forest. Mm. Well, I, I think, you know, the breed is for, everything. The breed matters, right? And you can have an, a, a, a system like this one and, and choose poorly with your breed. Our, our supply chain um, is utilizing uh, breeds that, that actually are capable of um, living outside, that desire to evade uh, predation, that have more, more natural life cycles. Their bone structures develop before their meat does so they can actually hold the weight gain. Their organs... Uh, like their heart and their lung develops early so that they can live and be healthy. And you need that if you're going to let them outside and they're going to be exposed to hawks and eagles and coyotes and owls, they need to be able to, to, to move and they need to have that desire to move. And so, you know, we think that's important. It makes them grow a little slower so they don't convert feed as fast and they're not as cheap, but they're getting to live a life and live in an environment that feels a little more appropriate to us. And again, this is our opinion. Um, but that feels like a path I get a little bit more excited about supporting than, you know, some of the alternatives that we've discussed. All of our partners are working on improving the feed supply, um, working on creating a regenerative feed supply. And we know that in order to have a feed supply be regenerative, there needs to be diversity, which means it can't all be corn. It can't all be soy. There has to be other forms of food and grains into it. Right. And so they're working on a, a diverse feed supply, um, which is, which is foundational to us. But in order for that to work, and you mentioned breed a second ago, the Cornish cross is designed to live on cheap corn and soy. Like that bird, that genetics would not thrive on a regenerative diet. It needs, you, you need to have a bird that is, you know, rewinds the clock a little bit and can actually sustain itself having a diverse mix of food. Um, and so the breed and, and the feed are priorities uh, for the operations um, that we work with in order to optimize a bird for the lifestyle that the bird should have in the context and setting that the that is on farm and to be able to support a system off farm that we're proud of. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I understand this picture and I think if this was taking place in central Texas or a semi-arid environment, that it would look real bad around that barn. And so kind of going into one of the barns, that on-land impact, I know you talked about, hey, fruit trees are being planted, different nutting trees that require high nitrogen loads, but I'm also envisioning a lot of bare soil. So maybe like go into some of the cons of this fixed barn model i mean i think that the fixed barn model I, I i agree with what you're saying that's sort of how i envisioned it before i actually went there is that you would show up and like the land right outside the, the barn that they go into at night the area when they come out in the morning is going to be like basically bare but it was not that way at all and i think it's it, it's pure management right so i hate it when people say right <laughs> it really pisses me off um it, it has to do with the people management at that point. And so it's really about how are you cycling and the, the birds in and out and giving the land the proper amount of rest that it needs. It's also very like uh, uh, location specific. 
um, like where these birds are raised is has so much more rain than Texas. And so there's actually grass pretty much all the time, um, which is impressive. And so that I think over impact can be a big issue. Um, but what we're ensuring is that these all of the um, producers that we're working with are actually doing soil testing and ensuring that they're regenerating their soils next to their barns and beyond um, year over year. But, but from a comp perspective, it is a slippery slope, right? You know, if, if right? we don't do our job of driving accountability, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't do our job of driving accountability, you know, just try to cram as many birds through there. You could put 20,000 birds in those barns or you could put 50,000 birds in those barns mm -hmm. and you could give the barn zero rest. The day one group goes out and you clean it up, you put another group in, or you could give that land outside that barn a month or more of rest. Um, and so there, that, 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 like I said, it, it, it's, there's a fine line between doing it well with, with the proper management and taking advantage and taking shortcuts once again, um, uh, to try to get your, to improve your, your numbers. Um, and, 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 and I, and I think this particular model gets a lot of hate mail. Um, from other folks within the poultry industry. And I think it's because it does. It looks more like an industrial model again. And in but many that's cases... that's just like mindset. Like, think about it. I mean, like, how does the mobile coop not look like an industrial model? It's literally an industrial model without a floor. It's been rebranded. It's been rebranded. <laughs> yes. And the power of marketing. You marketers, I tell you what. <laughs> um, but again, from a, from an appearance perspective, it, it, it resembles an industrial model. Oftentimes, taking an industrial barn cutting holes on the side it. of it, yeah. right? And then doing a lot of management and work outside the barn that if um, if not done well and not done properly, um, isn't too many degrees of freedom away from an industrial model. And again, with too many birds and too much density, you know, so there's an opportunity without oversight for, um, you know, taking convenient shortcuts that make it really just another you know, lipstick on a pig, another version of the, of, of the, of the model. And then I think the other, the other thing is, and this really apply, applies to the mobile model as well, but, you know, seasonality, you know, again, we used to eat seasonal food. Um, you know, some of these barns and these pastures where they're able to recover more quickly and they have the trees and, and, and things like that, you know, it's like you, there's, there's times of the year where you probably shouldn't be using these birds. And if, and if they're in inclement, if they're experiencing a lot of inclement weather because of where they are, or if they're experiencing a lot of cold days or a lot of hot days, they're probably not wanting to go out of the barn or or not being allowed to go out of the barn because it might be too cold or not safe. And so there there, there will be those instances and there could be those those days where that happens. And I think that's one of the biggest um, attacks that the, that these models get right because they're they're according to the USDA, you know, basically anybody can make a pastured claim as long as they have access to the outdoors during during the growing during their growing season. And I think that gets commonly interpreted to like 51% of their life and access can mean a window they poke their head out of. Um, and so... Which is why it's just so important that instead of just like blindly trusting these terms that are so ambiguous, that you actually like get your feet on the ground and go visit and visit your suppliers and see is the chicken putting his head outside and that counts as outdoor access or like how do i feel about how many doors are on that barn how do i like what does it sound like when i get show up here like are there insects are there birds around you know like what does the grass look like what is it you know like 
it's just the human, you know, foot on the ground, the boots on the ground thing. Like, it's just so important to have the human context. None of this, every single farm, every single mobile coop, every single fixed barn, every single homestead is so contextually different. And so to make a generalization about any one particular setup is without visiting it is just inaccurate and wrong. I think, I think the folks casting, um, naming names and casting blame and, 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 um, offering criticisms for places they've never, places they've never been or expressing a form of, uh, undoubtedly a form of ignorance. Nonetheless, the, the attacks happen. You hear the term greenwashing thrown around for it and, and largely around, you know, calling those systems a pastured claim. It's like, Hey, if it's not out in this, if it's not out in a giant field of recovering cropland, then it's not pastured because that's, you know, semantically speaking, that's my preferred, that's how I identify. That's how my pasture land identifies. <laughs> um, and even, even the NRCS, right? The Natural Resource Conservation Service says range and pasture lands are different. It defines um, our range land and pasture land are different than cropland. It defines range and pasture land as diverse types of land where the primary vegetation produces herbaceous plants and shrubs. Sort of like hazelnuts and fruit trees and, and 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 other you know other things and so like every by by every definition whether it's the USDA claim whether it's the NRCS definition of what is pasture these birds are have have unrestricted access to pasture they are raised on pasture they are pasture raised they have a safe barn to go back to that makes them feel comfortable that reduces their stress level that is my belief there are a lot of people in this industry that have a different belief that hate me for holding that belief. They're entitled to their opinion. Mine is different and I'm, and I'm just as convicted in it as they are in theirs. And that's okay. I think it's interesting when you look at this model because, you know, like you think about the backyard chicken model, it requires um, a coop. It requ- the, whole his- all, the whole history of, of chicken since the agriculture revolution is a coop. It is requ- this model. It, it is this model. You know, like you're, you open the door in the morning, they go enjoy the day. They come back at night, you close the door. You protect them from predators. They protect themselves. You know, like this is their desire. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. I like that this model, you can be sure you're not eating a weak or a sick chicken because since they're so immersed in a natural ecosystem, there would be some predator species that would annihilate it. They're only going to eat the fat, the weak, the sick, the injured animal first. So from this system, you're, you're pretty much ensuring that that nature and through her evolutionary wisdom is passing along the most resilient energy source to the end consumer. Yeah. Well, yeah, but even, it, even, even the, uh, you know, whenever you're letting them run out and you're not, you're not confining them, you know, they get, they get preyed upon. So you have, you have death loss. So you're actually sustaining wildlife. You see wild, you know, white oak pastures used to do this and they brought bald eagles back on their land, but it cost them 15 to 20% of their flock. So their birds got real expensive. And so, you're going to end up paying more for these birds, but what is what is more what is more environmentally or eco evolutionarily consistent, providing ecosystem services than having a living organism that is sustaining other living organisms in that ecosystem? Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, none of these systems that we've talked about represent nature. Like, there's there's still nowhere in nature where you're going to find hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of chickens. So so we we agree that people eat too many chickens. We need to get that number down, but if people are going to eat chickens, they need to pay significantly more for quality. Now, why 
the hell did Force of Nature just launch more chicken products, expand their chicken lineup if if collectively the leadership at top is aware of these issues, it it feels kind of like a counterintuitive or contradict contradiction in some capacity. So, so knowing all that we know, why is force of nature doing chicken in any way? And actually one of our employees asked this question after we gave the presentation, which I felt like was awesome. Cause I was like, hell yeah, she is a badass. She only eats bison and beef all the time yeah she was paying attention she was was like i already don't eat a lot of chicken for these same reasons so why are we doing it yeah um and you know the best answer that i could give is um not the answer robbie's gonna give but i feel like if it's sort of like being vegan which i was vegan one time and i thought i was being vegan so i could like opt out of the industrialized meat model like i didn't want to consume industrialized commoditized beef and so i opted out and when you opt out you're not making any actual changes to the world and so you know at force nature we were sort of like well how can we like opt in and make a difference and so instead of opting out and deciding not to be a part of this industry we decided to opt in and actually change the industry help change the industry yeah and we are always going to be ruminants first um, in fact, we sell very, very, very little poultry, and that will always be the case. Um, and as it stands right now, we have no intention or desire to expand poultry, even in retail. We, we typically only offer it online, um, and that will be the area where we focus it. And there's reasons for that too, right? In order to offer free shipping online, there's a there's a high minimum order and it's easier for folks to fill their card up with things that they're familiar with and comfortable with. It's a way for us to do exactly what Katie just said, support a better path forward, offer consumers something that's a little more familiar, but we're, like, we're not building our entire business on, on this. We're just not burying our heads in the sand on the issue. I also think that, again, we have taken a blood oath to fight industrial row crop agriculture. Um, and we will support anybody that's, that's embarking in that fight, however hard or challenging. And there are a few poultry producers out there, a very small few who are actually working to do that. And even if we take shots for aligning with them and working on that, we're willing to do it because it needs to happen. Um, and, you know, with that said, and as you mentioned early on, T- Taylor, like we've removed the regenerative claim for many poultry. We believe how the poultry, our supply chain, how it's being managed on farm is within a regenerative context. We don't feel like the meat in the package holistically is justified in carrying a regenerative claim until the feed supply is there. And, and, it, and, it, and it's just not there yet. Um, for anyone. For any. For anyone. And, and anyone. Eggs. Broilers. Totally. Layers. And, it, and I think the other the other thing that we do and that we've set out as a company to do is to be a content company, to create awareness and then to create access. And if we're not involved in poultry, then we're sort of hypocrites by trying to go out and get involved in the space and create awareness to all these issues in poultry. So taking a stand, getting involved so that we can raise, educate and raise awareness for consumers that that these truths exist and that these options exist. And look, you listen to this podcast and you don't like the path that we've chosen for the reasons that we've chosen and you want to support an alternative, by all means, that's your God-given right. Good luck. You know, best to you. I hope you do. I hope you support other stuff that we do and I hope that aligns with what you what you like and that's fine as well. But I, I believe in transparency and, I, and we believe um, that you should have access to the truth. 
Robbie, Katie, sometimes the truth hurts. And if you had your feathers ruffled by the truth of the poultry industry, well then maybe you're eating too much damn chicken and you should eat some more resilient, strong animal like bison or beef. And you probably won't be as sensitive and you probably won't get your feelings hurt by other people's words and opinions. So as always, thank you, Robbie. Thank you, Katie, for hanging out. You know, our friendship and our history goes way back. Many moon cycles, but the season of our lives that we're in, we don't even get to spend as much time together as we used to. So this podcast is a great occasion for a reunion and to share stories and to talk and to remind ourselves that the work that we're doing, the work that we've devoted our lives to is for a greater purpose and we're driving positive change. If this episode of Where Hope Grows maybe resonated with you on a level to where you decided you're never going to eat chicken ever again in your life, well, I'll give you a high five for that. And we got you covered at forceofnature.com. We can ship regenerative ruminant regenerating animals to your doorstep anywhere in the continental United States. If for some reason this podcast resonated in a different way and you feel like I got to eat some fucking chicken, I want to eat some of that good, good old school heirloom heritage breed birds like my great, great, great grandparents. Well, you can also head over to www.forceofnature.com and we can ship some heirloom high quality, nutrient dense, very flavorful chicken to your doorstep. I love wrapping these episodes up with a real review that someone left on our Apple podcast account, but no one left a review between the last two episodes. So what the F and F people, you know, to fill this space What comes to mind is this beautiful little prayer that my daughter Scout says at dinner time. It goes something like this. Thank you for a world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. Thank you for the birds that sing. Thank you, God, for everything. And in the case of chickens, yes, chickens are birds and chickens do sing, but it sounds more like a cluck. So I am grateful for all chickens and all clucks. Until next time, farewell. Farewell.